You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this The is Hour. Is You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is Ari's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. Coming up on this month's show, Jeff Mills will be discussing science fiction. And Christine Kakari will be reading you a feature she wrote for RA on Macau, which is a stunning arts and music venue in Milan, whose future is currently hanging in the balance. But to kick us off, I'm going to hand over to RA's news editor, Aaron Coltate. He's going to be tackling the complicated question of how DJs open their sets. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The opening track of a DJ set isn't usually something that gets discussed very much, but it's the thing that's been popping up more and more in my conversations with friends these past few months. Usually, these conversations focus on a DJ who's started off their set in a memorable way. One person who's mentioned regularly is Hooney. His trademark intro is the a cappella at the start of Happiness by the Pointer Sisters. He plays the first 40 seconds or so of the tune, which allows him to reset the mood completely and take things in his own direction, usually with pretty explosive results. I love the way you love to live. You love life. Your inspiration. I love the way that you give. Your heart so freely Your sweet sensation You're my invitation to Another favourite of mine is Helena Hauf, who always seems to pick the right opening tune for the right occasion. The first time I saw her play, she slammed on fad gadgets collapsing new people as her first tune and instantly turned the party on its head. So I found myself becoming increasingly curious about how much thought DJs put into their first tune and what kind of approaches they take. Is the first track of the set even that important? What are the different ways to approach it? Who are the DJs who've mastered this nebulous art form? I did some digging and spoke to a bunch of DJs, including Jennifer Cardini, Roxy Moore and JD Twitch. But before we get to that lot, my investigation began in RA's London office on a sweltering afternoon with my colleague, Stephen Titmus. Stevie, hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Um, you've been to your fair share of festivals and clubs down the years, is that, that fair to say? Yeah, that'd be fair to say. 15 years deep in the game. From your experience, how important is the uh, opening track of a DJ set? Well, it can kind of depend. Um, you know, many DJs would prefer to complement their previous DJ's style and try and play something that would fit the mood. Other DJs are perhaps more egotistical or want to make an impact and they perhaps would rather play a big intro tune and you know that can be a real turning point in the set it can also really um, act as a mood changer or can really act as a way to get from a particular style of music to a new one when it comes to I guess distinctive uh, opening tunes um, and DJs that maybe have a trademark opening song are there any that sort of spring to mind 
Yeah, sure. Well, I started my raving career in the UK garage scene, and that was absolutely chock full of DJs that would do that. Um, I'm thinking of DJ EZ most prominently, but he's not the only one. Guys like Master Steps had a intro tune, um, the Dream Team, almost most DJs from the garage scene would have an intro uh, tune and that was primarily because those sets were really short and you know you wanted to make an impact and let everyone know who was in charge and that combined with an MC would probably leave no one in doubt who was DJing right there. So talk us through what what that actually means in in terms of having one of those trademark openers for like someone who hasn't seen EZ play. I remember the first tape back I ever bought back in 1988 was a DJ EZ uh, Club Coliseum Exposure number one. Um, I just remember, and I'd never been to a rave at that point, um, MCPSG screaming, DJ EZ's going to come on, and next thing you know, the next tune's telling you it's DJ EZ. It gets rewound in a second, and the crowd goes absolutely mental. I think that is my absolute memory of of a great intro tune. It sets out the stall of you know who you are and what you're going to do. I think it probably comes primarily from Jamaican sound system culture. You know, David Rodigan, the king of specials, every one of his records says his name in it. It's, you know, a combination of ego and trying to communicate who's behind the decks, I think. Sounds like he's getting busy like this. Uh. Have a love like that. Three, two, one. So, some varying approaches are starting to emerge. Here's Palms Tracks, a DJ and producer with close ties to Deckmantle, who I spoke to via Skype from his Berlin home. My favourite opener of all time is going to be Don Carlos alone. It's just like the perfect opener. You can loop the pads at the beginning, so it's just one note, and it kind of mixes in over the top of anything, like any, any DJ's last track. It's just long enough that it gives you enough time to kind of get yourself ready and set up and take some records out. And then it's got a really nice sort of section in the final third where you can kind of mix out of it into something a bit tougher. I don't know of any younger DJs who have like an opening track. I kind of feel like this might not be so common anymore. And I'm trying to think why that is. And I tend to blame the music identification group because people get the wrong idea that you're just playing the same tracks every single set. But it really works. Like, I get so excited every time I hear the Point Sisters come on. And then you're just waiting to see what the first track is going to be and where it's going to go. I think it's like a brilliant idea. I would like to do one as well, but then I sort of missed the boat. Like, I've already been DJing for a couple. Like, when can you introduce a trademark track? To have one, especially one with a vocal kind of like bigging yourself up you have to be at a level where people are there to see you and it gets them excited i think if if i was to turn up and my dj name was dj mashed potato 
for want of a better example. And no one in the crowd knew who I was. And I played a two minute intro that said, that was just basically saying how good DJ Mashed Potato was and how you're in for the time of your lives. Everyone would just think you were an idiot. Not just because of the name, but they would think how arrogant and maybe they would just leave. Or you're suddenly up against it because those people then are expecting you to prove to them how good you are. But if you, like, if you're Laurent Garnier, you know that most people know who you are or are there to see you. So you can play an intro that, you know, might go on for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and no one is going to leave. I think the, like, problem is that people have quite a short attention span in a clubs, especially in places with a smoking ban. And when there's a changeover, you know, you'll usually think, okay, I'll wait till the end of this set. And then there's a change, you go to the bar, go to the smoking area, go to the bathroom, and then you come back. And so there's a tendency maybe to like think, okay, the intro track has to be quite hard to kind of keep everyone on board or to keep the energy up and make sure everyone stays. And with an intro track that's not got any drums or anything and is resetting the mood, unless you have like an audience there that are really there to see you, I think most people would just leave and then that's always a bad feeling. I recently noticed the French DJ Jennifer Cardini posting some footage on Facebook from a festival where she was deliberating over her first tune. So I gave her a call and discovered that she gives very careful consideration to the opening tracks in her sets. I put a lot of thought in choosing the, the track of the opening set. First of all, I'm, I'm a bit anxious, so I like to prepare, let's say, the first three, four records just to feel comfortable and then after go with the flow. So um, I always think about what would be the first track. Also, um, back in the days when I started to be interested in DJing and listening to other DJs, like DJs like Laurent Garnier, for example, in the early 90s, everybody had an opening track. Uh, it was very rare that, that uh, DJs would just mix in the new track. They always had like kind of an intro. So I think that this disappeared maybe a little bit with time but um, it's kind of an old school thing that, that I like to do. I like to, to, um, to have like a track that, that has a tension. It doesn't necess necessarily need to cut with the previous uh, uh, DJ, but it's a track that carries attention, that also gives a little signal that something is changing. Like a departure bit, you know, like, okay, now just come with me, you know, it's this kind of message. I, it's, it's not egocentric or because I had this conversation with other DJs and they're like, yeah, intros, it's an ego thing. And, and I disagree with that. For me, the, the intro is really a way to set a different tension. Um, also, it can be really handy if, for example, the person before you is doing a warm-up at 128 BPM, like it happens sometimes. So that's um, that's a nice way to break with uh, with the rhythm or the BPM of the, the DJ before and to, to start your own thing. It sets the atmosphere, different ambience and yeah. I think tension is, is very powerful and this is what makes it interesting 
in choosing a first track is that you can really you can really go down with a with a BPM and start your own thing and have a progression to build that up. There are two people that impressed me with starting their DJ set lately. It was Bound, because you know direct that something is going on. And um, I was really impressed by Honey when we played Love International last year, because Honey is doing something that I don't dare always to do. He, he breaks everything and go down to 90 BPM. And he did this in a festival we, we played together. He started with an instrumental of Depeche Mode at like 95 BPM and just built the full set and it, it was really great. And I think that he's kind of mastering this first track thing right now. Back in the studio, I caught up with Andy Blake, one of London's most respected DJs and a key figure behind the world unknown parties to find out how he prefers to start his sets. Hey Andy, in terms of your own DJ sets at the moment, what kind of things do you take into consideration when you're picking your first tune and, and what kind of variables are there? There's, I guess there's quite a few. I mean, there's, there's the one when you're the first DJ on. That can be very different depending on who's around. I think that's the time when I would play the slightly more atmospheric thing. If I'm going on in the middle of the night for quite a few years now, I tend really just to pick up where it is. I mean, sometimes I might make, there might be a sort of stylistic shift, but I think a lot of people have a thing they quite like to kind of scrub it all out and start again and, uh, and put a new bed in. And I kind of prefer to lift off what's already happening because if I find if everyone's playing in say two and three hour lumps and everyone keeps resetting it, that lunacy magic kind of thing that happens when it's really, you know, people just really lose themselves. If you keep resetting it, you can end up with this I don't know, it's like going to watch bands or something, rather than being caught up in this kind of immersive experience. I mean, obviously this is only my opinion, there's a million different ways to do this, and most of them are right, it seems. So these days, and for quite some time, I'll just pick up with a sort of a fairly hefty rhythm track that I can bring in towards the end of the previous DJ's record, unless sometimes it's really obvious that their record they've played is meant to finish, some kind of crescendo, some kind of climax, or denouement, or whatever. And if that's the case, I'll respect that, and, and I will start again. But if it's, you know, if the party's pumping along, then I'll just bring something in, a muscles, you know, sort of bones and muscles kind of tune. So it's more about, rather than fully cleansing the, the palate, it's about maintaining the groove. For me, at the moment, in most of the gigs I'm doing, which tend to be bigger rooms and, and you know, essentially house or techno of one kind or another, then that's that's where I am at the moment. There will are, of course, other gigs you go and do them. But in terms of that kind of cleansing, those moments where you just drop it all to nothing, I'll probably wait until I've been playing for a while before I do that. I kind of like to get things, just keep to keep things kind of where they are. It's almost like an Escher painting, isn't it, where it sort of sounds like it keeps going up, but actually it can't possibly be because it hasn't gone through the roof. It's staying somewhere, somewhere kind of sensible. And at any stage in your DJ career, would you say you've ever had like a, a signature opening tune that you would you found yourself going back go, to go through phases all the time i mean it's it's funny because when you asked me to do this i was thinking it's kind of interesting because i'm almost in this like not opening tune kind of mode in terms of these kind of non-opening opening records that i'm playing now there's one this dj emily record which is an old yoshitoshi thing uh, so i think the ep is called the disco bandit ep and the track that i play a lot is the long track on the other side which i'm fairly sure isn't the disco bandit track which is a john chiffone production it's you know like his things is big hefty swinging drums and a bass line eventually turn, turns up and sends people out the mines. That's one that gets a lot of play, but it's almost it's, it's almost anonymous in the way it happens. It's not a big tune, big tune, but it actually has an incredibly large effect if you sort of, you know, if you utilise it properly.
it's a tool, isn't it? But then I guess they're all, to an extent, they're all tools when they're in a nightclub. Does that also help you get that first transition or beat match kind of locked in and then you're up and running for your Yeah, I guess so. I hadn't really thought of that, but yeah, you're right. Aren't you? Especially playing records are perhaps a little bit different playing CDs because, of course, if it does need a nudge other direction, you're not going to hear that slurring thing. If you're playing records like I do, you make a mistake with something like that, you sound like a bit of a tit and it's not an especially good start to get off to. You're always a bit nervous when you start, I think. That's Roxy Moore, a Berlin-based DJ known for her unusual track selections. It's, it's part of the work of a performer, I mean, as a DJ or if you play just a proper instrument. I mean, like the first 20 minutes is really important because the time where you try to read the crowd is like a transition moment, I think, the beginning of a set. I'm always a little bit nervous, but I'm, always, I'm happy when it works. I'm like, ah, oh, yes, I made it. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> If you want to tell a story, it's always good to catch the attention of your audience properly. I'm not the type of DJ who really prepares uh, her set so much in advance, so I um, often improvise with the mood of the party. Uh, of course, if I open the night, I will always start with something with not so much beats and it will be like more ambientish. But if it's, I'm in the middle of the night, yes, I try to start, hey, <laughs> reclaiming this moment for me but at the same time I'm going to respect the whole mood of the party so it's like a mix in between but I will say that the last months I have been usually starting my set with often the same track but it's a proper house track but there's no beat the beat starts maybe after two minutes it's a mix of a cappella and a proper classic uh, house track it's a good gate to go whatever I want actually so I can go back to the mood of the DJ before or go to my mood, whatever. Here's Andy again. I played with um, Vladimir Ivkovich recently at um, Dirty Talk in Bristol. He played the first three hours and I played the second three hours. Vladimir does this kind of slow, grinding, throbbing. It's a tense thing and he's got all these trance records he plays slowed down and he's got these kind of tribal things coming in and out and it's just this very, very heavy sort of soup. It was just perfect, absolutely perfect, the way he ground it up. It's not a warm-up, it's this other kind of thing. And then, you know, I think we all knew that I was going to play faster. I came at it from a completely different perspective. And I had, like, there was no plan. It's just like, okay, actually, yeah. I've got a couple of, like, really good um, cut-up records from the 80s, like loops of drums out of the really cool rough bits out of loads of funk records. And, and some of them you recognise and most of them you don't. It's, it's got a big hustle on it. So I ended up picking up off the end of his last record with that and played a couple of those and then played Johnny the Fox by... Um, Thin Lizzy. I guess that was a sort of that palate cleanse type thing, except it wasn't really, it was a, a lift. And then after that started playing sort of more house and, and techno and stuff, kind of pitched a fair way down, but not as far down. And what kind of reaction did that get? It seemed to be a pretty good one. The place was uh, Hell's Angel Biker Bar. So it's like one of them, it was like one of my career highlights. It's like I played Johnny the Fox in the Hell's Angel Bar and all the Hell's Angels went mad. Everyone else seemed to really enjoy it as well. And it was just a really nice little moment because it kind of felt respectful to what Vladimir had done, respectful to the party, true to what I do. Uh, and it's a bit of a once in a lifetime. I'm never going to get to do that. Probably not going to get to do that again, am I? Two of the key variables when it comes to opening tracks are time and place. Coaxing people onto the dance floor during a warm-up set is a very different scenario to coming on at peak time to a heaving crowd. Tasha spoke to us about playing early doors at her techno party, Neighbourhood. 
Hi, I'm Tasha. All my parties are based in London. Yeah, started at Plastic People, moved on to Dance Tunnel, and now we're based at Pickle Factory. You know, when I'm opening up neighbourhood, I'll play a lot of beatless stuff, a lot of drone, and then building it up with some more beats when people want to start dancing. If I've just discovered a new tune that I'm just totally obsessed with and I'm really excited about it, I want to put that out there and share that with the audience. And I think that sometimes can just be the choice. I'm, I'm going to play this because this is the most exciting tune that I've picked up this last week or whatever. And I, I want to play this, it's going to go off. It might not, <laughs> but I think it's going to. But yeah, opening at Glastonbury, I started with El Gato. Uh, tonight um, has more softer tone uh, obviously there's no one in the tent so you've got to bring everyone in so that does have a, an impact on what my first tune will be sometimes it's quite good to come in with a bit of a surprise like yeah that was that and I'm here and this is what I play making a bit of a statement I do like the way that some other DJs do that you know like when Surgeon comes and plays you know exactly what time it is you know where you're at what kind of he's going to be playing and it might be completely different from the last person but it's no compromise same with like Helena Hoff she'll just come in and play what she plays but yeah I think it's important to try and set the tone from the off when you're opening Here's JD Twitch one half of Optimo a DJ who's never been one to play it safe in his sets I think I probably have a non-approach to my opening track as it totally depends on where and when I'm playing if I'm following on from another DJ, I usually try to mix into what they are playing to maintain the flow. My first track will usually be something that fits with the current moods. So in those situations, it's actually my second track that is more important, as that is the track that will start to take it in my direction. When we are fortunate enough to play all night, or as one of our own nights, I think of the first 30 minutes as being the first track. I think it is very important to create the right atmosphere for people coming into the club, setting up an atmosphere for the people for when they feel ready to start dancing. I love that part of the night where it almost imperceptibly changes from a few people dancing to the dance floor filling up. Here's Jennifer Cardini. When I was young, I just wanted to give it all, you know, so I was not, not really doing a warm-up, I was more like playing all my favourite records. And I learned to do a warm-up playing clubs like Rex or uh, Robert Johnson, like where you can really start slow and stuff. So I have many examples, especially uh, in France, where the, the, the warm-up is harder sometimes that what I would play at the end of my set. So in that case, it's important for me to just make a break, you know, and uh, in that case I always choose something with melodies, a little bit hypnotic, but that carries attention. So for example, last week I started with a new Marvin and Guy on Life and Death, the, the Train of Fantastic, which uh, has a very a specific atmosphere and the lyrics are also an invitation to join you know, to, to get on, on the train with me. So that's a good starting track. We're going to the other side of our minds. This is a one-way drive. On the train of fantastics. It feels like we've pulled back the curtain some of the key things, be it nerves, preparation or instinct, that affect someone's opening track. I'd like to say a big thanks to everyone who took the time to chat about this underappreciated element of a DJ set.
AVA in Belfast is gaining a reputation as a festival with one of the most up-for-it crowds on the circuit. But before the wonderful chaos descended on Belfast back in early June, AVA staged a much more calm pre-festival conference. RA's Stephen Titmus sat down with Jeff Mills, who was at AVA with his visual collaborator, Guillaume Marmen, to perform their project Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. Science fiction and space have long been obsessions for Mills, and it's with these subjects that he begins this highlights reel from the conversation. Science fiction is really uh, science for the average for the average person who isn't a, a, a um, astrophysicist. You know, these are hunches about um, the future and reality and time, uh, really from the average person's mind. And so that's why I think science fiction, you know, is is so interesting. And sometimes we see science fiction actually becoming science. Um, because sometimes what people sense is actually what things, you know, you know the reality of things. So the genre uh, is full of ideas and full of visions and full of theories and full of um, uh, things that um, are really are in the back of our minds and we somehow kind of play them out in terms in uh, literature and uh, films and things like that. Um, and, and then also from a subconscious thing, I think that um, it can address what we dream about as well. So the things that we are affected by, you know, during the night hours uh, somehow comes out in the ways that, that we see what would happen if we were to colonize a planet and, and be stranded for, you know, uh, and so what would we do? What if we encountered this? What if we, and so, um, uh, so it's an interesting uh, genre to, to work in. One of the projects that I'm working on uh, now is um, another classical piece called Lost in Space. So the audience is lost in the cosmos and they don't know where they are. And in the process, they experience all these amazing, strange, bizarre things in space that actually happen. So uh, mirages, things that they appear that appear to be there, but actually you know, they're not or planets crashing into each other, or planet and moon, like Earth and, and moon crashed in at, at one time. Stars that act like um, animals that nomadically uh, travel throughout the space. All these things uh, happen, and, and, I've, and I've kind of translated them into a classical score, which should be, uh, which should be ready by April. There is one composition where, yeah, where, where one planet uh, crashes into a moon. And the way that I compose the track is that there, there's a build-up to the climactic part where they crash, and then there's a very long tail that happens almost to the end of the composition. It's about 10 minutes long. But that's the, that's, that's the, that's the dust and the debris of what happens from, from each uh, of the planets crashing. I think as humans, we recognize a certain language that goes with the act of lights blinking off and on. I mean, the strobe light, uh, is a form of communication in itself, seen and then not not seen. A strange uh, effect on reality 
because it's, it's, it's causing you to miss frames through your eyes and then also in your brain. This is what DJs know all the time. And um, it's, it's an effect um, that many DJs have learned to be able to look through. As an example, I mean, when you, if, if there were a strobe light in here, your movements would be seemingly enhanced uh, because the strobe light is, is, is blinking. But some DJs are trained to kind of look through that to kind of block that out in their mind to know exactly how much movement is actually really, you know, really happening. So uh, it's, a, it's an effect that um, uh, if used at the right time, if matched with sound, uh, can be even more descriptive of certain certain ideas and, and concepts. The easy part is 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 seeing things and hearing sound. The difficult part is the opposite of that. I still don't use computer to create music because I still prefer to work on the machine itself. The more the more analog pieces. Yeah, like nine nine and nine. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, yeah, because they they um, were built to be standalone type of machines, and they have certain characters which are different from one another. When you when you piece them together, it's like a it's like you're kind of like piecing together a band. I think it's important to take the time to think about what you've just done. And, and what you need to do. So actually working on these machines takes longer. And in the, in the process, I end up changing my mind six or seven times. With the computer, it was too quick. So I, I, I could make the composition too quickly. And then, and, then, and then I move on to something else. So I actually purposely made it more difficult for me to compose music. But in the process, I'm, I'm thinking about what, what I'm actually doing. I think it's more like life. I think that... Uh, you know, you know, some days it's raining, some days it's not. I think that when you're in the studio and you're creating, you're creating for people, not other machines. So this, this idea of perfection uh, is something that I think is kind of on the outer barrier of where I think music is used in, in, in a more impactful way of communicating. So I never, I never want music to be perfect. I just wanted to capture the moment. What's the experience of, of working with a classical orchestra like compared to just working on your own with a 909? Most are not scared, but they're kind of reluctant, especially cl classical musicians are um, covering their ears before, you know, when, when they meet me, they're, they're covering their ears um, because they're, they're, they're so afraid of, of, of the, you know, the, the sound of electronic music is, is and so, um, but but uh, yeah, you you have to, you find ways to find common uh, links between what they do and and what electronic musicians do, and you start from there, and then they realize that uh, it, you're you're based, you're doing the same thing. It's just the method. What story. are the common links between the two worlds? Well, it, it helps when there's when there's a subject. Uh, classical musicians don't make music to make people dance, so forget about that. But if there's if there's a, a subject that is um, that, that just ties everyone a, a common purpose. So in the in the current case, uh, uh, say my, the last score that I did was about planets. Um, well, they they of course know about Gustav Holst and you know and all the many different versions of classical that have been made about the planets. So it's easy for them to under it's easy for classical musicians to understand what the objective is. And so the electronic parts and the classical parts are just 
addressing each element, each planet. Uh, and so it's, it's easier to, to discuss. And then, and then also I have to say that um, there isn't that much difference between or, or distance between the way electronic music, uh, musicians and classical musicians work. Um, both both are very, very focused, very um, methodical. Uh, both deal in uh, numerics. Um, and um, in electronic music, especially conceptual, we, we try to, as best as we can, uh, to translate the subject as much as possible, as close as possible. In classical, their objective is basically the same. Their, their job is to translate the composer's work and his, what he was thinking as close as, as, as possible. So when we get together, we're both working to do that. So we're going to try something new for the next part of the show. Last week on the site, we ran a feature on Macau, which is a stunning arts and music venue in Milan. Christine Kukari wrote the piece and she's now going to read it for you in its entirety. I should point out that Macau is no ordinary venue for a few different reasons. The people behind Macau have been squatting the building since 2012. It's not run as a business. It costs five euro to get in. It programs everything from boxing matches to all-night dance music parties. And it's currently under threat for reasons that go well beyond the usual nightclub skirmish with local authorities. Milan's renowned sense of chic is most evident in its city centre, with its wide clean streets, decorative filigree balconies and street-side flower cellars. Just south of the centre, the tourist-friendly Navigli neighbourhood has a network of historic canals surrounded by lovely cobblestoned lanes. In one such lane, on a warm Friday evening in May, among the alfresco diners and after-work wine drinkers, RAL 8022, a cocktail bar, embodied the fascinating split personality of Milan's nightlife. To the right of the bar's entrance, there was a kinetic blur of cocktail shakers and a soundtrack of silky boom-bap hip-hop as patrons sip drinks in pairs and small groups. To the left of the doorway was the headquarters of the online station Radio Rahim. The Danish breakcore artist Havad was scorching his way through a DJ set, dancing in the glass-fronted booth that looks out onto the laneway. He was wearing a gold chain that looped in front of his blonde hair extensions, which were plaited into his beard and hung down to his waist. Little attempt was made to buffer the sound of one side of the space from the other, making standing in the doorway disorienting. Out in the lane, a group of people wearing black were gathered in front of the Radio Rahim window, talking animatedly. The broadcast was a preview for Dance Affliction, a party taking place the following night at Macau, an alternative arts space. Havad was playing with two of Dance Affliction's organisers, Arcangelo de Castres and Francesco Bursa Alessandri, the co-founder of Haunter Records. This was the fifth edition of Dance Affliction, a biannual party with an experimental music program that begins at midnight and extends well into the next day. There was an air of excitement about tomorrow's party. Someone told me that the event attracts people from all over northern Italy. When people learned that I hadn't been to Macau yet, I was told several times that I needed to experience it for myself to understand what it's about. Macau has no legal right to be where it is. 
Its founder occupied the current space, a once abandoned building, in June 2012 and remained there more or less unbothered since then. But earlier this year, the property's owners said that they now intend to sell, more than likely for the purpose of commercial redevelopment. Macau's founders, however, have a unique two-pronged plan. With the infrastructural support of an independent housing project initiative based in Germany, they will purchase the building themselves, under the proviso that the property is never to be sold again. The funds used to make the purchase will be publicly crowdfunded via donations and subscriptions, and in keeping with their egalitarian principles of cooperative ownership, any individual's contribution will ensure that person a part ownership of the space. Their proposed solution is still being defined internally and assessed externally by the property's current owners. After the radio show, we got together at a nearby restaurant, where over the din of bachelor parties and birthday groups, Alessandri and Manuela Gama Malcha laid out the wider context for Macau's threatened eviction. Gentrification, corrupt politicking and municipal mismanagement of public funds. Gama Malcha suggested heading to Macau that night for tofu banana cucumber, a night thrown by one of Macau's six other collectives, Hangar Games. As you head eastwards out of the centre of Milan in the direction of the Calvarata neighbourhood, there's an abrupt change of scenery. Smart shop fronts and eateries give way to shabby bars and large housing complexes in drab colours. Viala Melitza is the busy arterial road that runs north-south through Calvairata, and at the northern end there are telltale signs of modern residential development. Large plots of land behind security fences, hills of gravel, and fresh stripes of lawn yet to merge with the earth and conceal their seams. To the east of Viala Melitza is a huge 445,000 square metre tract of land known as Automacato, an area that Macau describes on their website as the largest abandoned area in the entire urban context of Europe. When it opened in 1965, Automacato was a centre for wholesale trade logistics and a large fresh produce market. Just a handful of its original pavilions remain in trade today, and most of it has fallen into disrepair. After being evicted from their former location, an abandoned skyscraper in the city centre owned by Salvatore Legresti, a developer currently imprisoned for corruption offences, the Macau Collective occupied one of the four empty buildings of Auto Mercato that face out onto Viala Melitze. They've remained there since June 2012, until it became known earlier this year that the owner of Auto Mercato, a company called SOGEMISPA, plan to auction off the buildings. Although it's officially a third-party entity, the controlling share of SOGEMISPA, 99%, is owned by the municipality of Milan. The Dance Affliction crew readily admitted that the groundswell of support for Macau is helped by the way the building looks. The aesthetic side is important, said Alessandri, because people come and are amazed that such a beautiful place isn't run commercially. Despite the doors having just opened and the space still being relatively empty, my gasp was audible over the music. The UK producer Logos perfectly described Macau the following night. This looks like the kind of underground nightclub you'd see in 90s movies like Blade. Macau is divided into three areas. The entrance leads into the hall, a large space of palatial decadence and ruined glamour. On the ground floor and up on the balcony level, paint hangs off the wall in uneven patches. A roof of transparent perspex tiles and a floor studded with patterns of glass bricks allows for a dramatic passage of light, 
both natural and artificial, to shine vertically through the room. Pillars reach up to ornate cornices. A series of doors off the hall lead to a mess of offices, band rehearsal spaces, rooms with piles of stock for the bar, scattered tools and jumbles of mismatched furniture. On the upper floor there are workshop studios, a small cinema and sleeping quarters. Macau's second room, Temple, is narrower but still has a type of old-world grandeur with creaking floors and high ceilings. An outdoor area, the garden, seamlessly transforms from a whimsical space with fairy-lit trees at night into a hideaway open-air after-hour spot in the morning. The building has enough gritty atmosphere to be a popular attraction in itself, and it's also malleable enough to suit the variety of daily programming that takes place there. This includes boxing matches, video making and photography workshops, experiential theatre, capoeira classes, concerts, anti-establishment art shows and all-night raves. Milan strictly regulates after-parties, so Macau's off-the-grid status helped to form dance affliction at a crucial time for each of its founders. As they were drawing closer to the idea of creating an open-minded rave community, each had a growing sense of disillusionment with the political activism and left-wing collectives they'd come from. We were not creating anything, culturally speaking, said De Castris, only fighting against others, so my attention got shifted from political environments to music. De Castris began to put on parties in Lecce, his home city, which began to offer him some sense of purpose. I could somehow link my past experience in collectives to certain values like respect for nature, respect for other people, the refusal of any profit, and the power of aggregation of people. After moving to Milan to attend law school, De Castris approached Macau to do a series of daytime parties there. They were not very frequent, one per month or less, he says. But after a while, it kind of felt a bit limiting because the time of day couldn't really give you the freedom of experimenting in a wide range of styles. We were a really incompatible sound for the situation of after parties. I started to think about longer timing. It came to my mind to start this 12-hour party together with Francesco, Manuela and Daniela Gurini, the other co-founder of Haunter Records, and we created Dance Affliction. The event's first edition in spring 2015 was followed by the crew's deeper integration into the fabric of Macau. Us and another crew of kids were already doing some parties here, and we ended up being part of the organisation of the first edition of Saturnalia Festival, explained Alessandri. From that we got invited from one of the people who actually created Macau to become the new Tavolo Suono, or Sound Table, which was the in-house sound collective. Macau was divided into subgroups who took care of the different disciplines, a sound table, a theatre table, a video table. Altogether, Macau's various tables include around 80 members, with 25 of those working on sound and music programming. In the interests of transparency, accountability and egalitarianism, a sound table meeting is held at Macau every Thursday at 9.30pm. It's open to the public and all programming decisions are discussed and finalised at these meetings by consensus. Every member has a say, and every voice holds equal weight, which means the meetings sometimes go on for several hours. At times, the meetings have been backgrounded by intergenerational tension between Macau's old guard founders and the newer sound tables, whose parties now bring in the lion's share of Macau's income. Initially, they took us for people who just wanted to party and get shit-faced, said Alessandri. They didn't understand what our culture was and what we were trying to make. The music was the problem because they saw people dancing, raving for long times and maybe taking drugs, and they started judging us for only being hedonists. 
it took a really long time to communicate, to have a productive conversation with them. Sometimes we fight, of course, said Gamma Malcha. There are many different people, many different views. Everyone wants to explain their needs and sometimes they don't meet, but every decision is made together. In the hour before Dance Affliction started on the Saturday, a dinner for the crew and artists, Havad and Logos, plus Kablam and Giant Swan, was served on tables that had been set up in the centre of the temple room. The conversation eventually turned to the dilemmas surrounding Macau's utopian vision. For instance, how to deal with people who ask to be let in for free because they can't afford the universal entry fee of five euros, let them in, versus the haughty types attracted by Macau's reputation who refuse to give money to an illegally occupied space, let them in as well. But it's important to try and infect these people in a way and draw people into our own mentality and make them come back more and more. How to make Macau more easily accessible to the local community, and how best to welcome their neighbours when relations might be frosty due to Macau's all-night noise. There is talk of adding more nuance to their current system of distributing money within the collective to more fairly and accurately reflect the level of participation. Inevitably though, all threads of conversation lead to the same point. There's a strong chance that Macau will no longer have a home in which to resolve any of these issues. When it began in the 19th century, and as it continued through the 20th century, the World's Fair, or Expo, served a clear purpose. The travelling global convention showcased important technological advancements, like the construction of the Eiffel Tower and the development of the telephone, to the public for the first time. Expo continues to this day, albeit controversially. It has arguably become what The Guardian called a bloated global extravaganza, 
wherein peacocking nations and corporate entities invest money to construct ostentatious pavilions and expensive gift shops. Nevertheless, in 2008, Milan submitted a bid to host an edition of Expo, with an understanding that the public funds plunged into the bid in the hosting of the event would be earned back through positive publicity, Expo tourism and future foreign investment potential. The bid was successful. A theme for Expo Milano 2015, Feeding the Planet, Energy for Life, was announced. But planning for the event quickly became mired in controversy. Expo Milano's organising body opted not to redevelop any publicly held space for use as the Expo site. Instead, Milan purchased land from a private seller at a square metre price that was estimated to be 15 to 20 times above standard market value. As the opening date drew closer, the strife deepened, with multiple Expo officials arrested on corruption charges. In a story titled, Milan Expo 2015, What's the Point? The UK newspaper The Telegraph published the following account of the site's delayed building works. We'll be ready for the opening day, said an official. We'll be 90% ready, said another. I'd program a visit for June rather than May to be on the safe side, said a third. Expo Milano 2015 had the unfortunate opening date of May 1st, International Workers' Day, a locus for anti-capitalism mobilisation. Milan's anarchist fringe, anti-capitalism groups, social activists and critics of the wastage of the event coalesced around a key message, hashtag no expo. Street demonstrations and clashes with police marred its opening day. In his opening address for Expo Milano 2015, even Pope Francis seemed to distance himself from the event. In certain ways, the Expo itself obeys the culture of waste, he said, and does not contribute to a model of equitable and sustainable development. The promised injection of foreign investment never arrived. There is a mandate from the city government now to draw money in because the city is in debt, mostly because of Expo, explained Alessandri. We got sold this thing that Expo was going to be very prolific and productive, but of course it only ended up making the rich people richer. Just a few months after he wrapped up his five-year tenure as CEO of Expo, Giuseppe Beppe Sala was appointed as the new mayor of Milan. In early 2017, it was announced that the 470 million euro Auto Mercato regeneration plan had been revised to a much more modest 80 million euros, and that SOGEMISPA would now sell the four Art Nouveau-style buildings that run along the Viala Molitze border of the property. One of these was the former slaughterhouse occupied by Macau. Dance Affliction's opening act was Presente, an Italo-Filipino producer from Bologna whose cinematic down-tempo set matched the dramatic look of the hall. From midnight, the sheer rate at which partygoers poured into the venue was remarkable, as was their trajectory. They quickly visited the bar and then diligently filled the dance floor up from the front to the back. The demographics were also notable. Long-haired 30-something men in button-down shirts, health goth types in long black sleeves with white lettering, dreadlocked Afro-Italians, ravers who claim their dancing space with their expressive moves, amorous couples, hyperactive lads. By the time Giant Swan began their live show an hour later, the hall was full. Kablam opened the temple to the same immediate enthusiasm. Sometime later, the anonymous duo packed Infernal were chirpy about the atmosphere of the party, rolling up cigarettes backstage with sweat glistening around the orbits of their balaclava eye holes. The night progressed, and as the sky brightened, the outdoor sound system was set up for the resident DJs. If there is to be a happy ending for Macau, its saviour will likely come from outside the collective and outside the country. 
the German cooperative Miethäuser Syndicat has offered financial and administrative support to self-organised groups in Germany for two decades, empowering them to collectively purchase what are primarily live-work creative spaces and withdraw them from the commercial real estate market permanently. Fortuitously for Macau, Miethäuser Syndicat would like to extend their operations across Europe. We would be the Trojan horse in Italy to open this network, said Gamma Malcha. The two organisations will embark on the process of forming a joint legal entity in Italy, so Miethäuser Syndicat will then be able to act as guarantor for a loan application to a non-commercial ethical bank to allow Macau the funds to purchase the property at a fair market price and operate as an official non-profit organisation. It would be the ideal resolution, but it's one that Gamamalcha and Alessandri are wary of becoming attached to. A few weeks after the party, we caught up on Skype, soon after Macau's first municipal meeting regarding the sale of the building. Miethäuser Syndicat submitted a letter of intent for Macau, but the best-case scenario will still require a two-year period of financing, meetings and negotiations. It's still unclear, said Alessandri. I hope is that they don't stop this process. They're constantly trying to push this agenda that we should not be here at all, and how this request from our part is an abuse of the municipality's trust. Right now we are under even bigger scrutiny by the process of law and of course police and even media attention. I'm a little worried that this could be all for show and trying to save face and save their more left-wing electoral base. They never talk about Expo, but it's actually pretty evident that one of the main reasons for the selling of this land is basically the huge amount of debt that the city is in after it. They could come in full force and evict us. If they are evicted, any footage of the incident would undoubtedly include the huge sign made of bold red letters that sits above the entrance to the graffiti-covered building. It was made by Macau's resident artists, both in ironic jest and defiant protest. It says, Vendezi, for sale. That's it for this month's show. Thank you for listening. The Hour will be returning next month with a story on the often devastating effects that immigration authorities are having on artists from outside of Europe and America. 